good evening, everyone. That was a little weak. Good evening, everyone. It's a lot better. It's great to see you all here on a Wednesday night. It's good to be here with my church family and just to see you guys and be able to be able to open the word and see what God has for us. Um, I hope you like seeing my face as much as I like seeing yours. Let's just say it that way. Just one announcement this evening. Um, we want to remind you that Sunday, November 15th, for those of you involved with the bridge, that will be meeting at 6 p.m. in the A Center. And as always, there are other things going on. We will be having a Christmas service before too long. Oh, yes, it's almost time. Christmas service will be coming up before too long. But uh, you can stay tuned with everything that's going on here at Grace Church via the events tab. Uh, on the website or the church app. Before Brother Dave comes this evening, uh, I, I want to leave you with something. I, I want to give you a little bit of a language lesson, and then I want to give you a challenge. Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8 says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of our faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, and he that showeth mercy with cheerfulness. The word the King James translates as exhortation is the Greek word paraklesis. Try that one, paraklesis. Well, there's like two of you. Come on, y'all try it. Paraclesis. That's all right. Okay, I'll let the rest of you slide. It's closely related to the word paraclete. Paraclesis basically means to call to one side, to beg or to beseech, to implore or to comfort. Paraclesis carries the idea of bringing someone closely alongside in order to exhort or urge or encourage or give joy and to comfort him or her, paraclesis. You know, interestingly, when Jesus spoke with his disciples on the night of his arrest, he spoke of the Holy Spirit as a helper, as the comforter, John chapter 14, which is why the Holy Spirit is sometimes referred to as the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and exhorts us and encourages us and comforts us. So Paul is telling the Romans here in, in Romans chapter 12, if you have the gift of prophecy, then get to it. Prophesy according to your faith. If you have the gift of ministry, get on it. Start ministering. If you have the gift of giving, then do it with simplicity. If you have the gift of paraclesis, then get to it. Start encouraging. Now look, you don't have to be superstar talented or have, the, have an IQ somewhere in the 140s or the money of, of Jeff Bezos to know that there's a lot of people need encouragement today. And you don't have to have that type of talent or that type of money or that type of IQ to be an encourager. Every day you meet people who are in deep need of encouragement. 
And they may not show it on the surface, but underneath, they're struggling to keep their head above water. They struggled to get out of bed. They struggled to show up. And some of them are at the point of despair. And your words, your words, your words can lift them. You know, even a smile can do it. Job said, they were discouraged and I smiled on them. My look of approval was precious to them. Solomon said, anxiety in the heart of a man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. Look, don't assume that because people don't exhibit, well, because people exhibit certain trappings, they they exhibit the trappings of success or, or the trappings of status, don't assume that they don't need encouragement. King David was a best-selling author. He was the most popular king, and he, he had military victories that people today still study and envy. But he also had days where he felt so low that he was reaching up just to touch bottom. David said, I was on the verge of collapse and facing constant pain. So it's not just those people who are obviously suffering who need encouragement. And it's not just the quote-unquote average person who needs encouragement. Best-selling authors, kings, and generals, they need it too. Folks, these days, in 2020, (laughs) everybody needs encouragement. So here's your challenge, and this is where I'm going to leave you. It's Wednesday. Today is Wednesday. Before Sunday, I challenge you, Rachel, encourage somebody. Marty, I challenge you, encourage somebody. Casey, encourage somebody. Before you come to church on Sunday or wherever you're going to be on Sunday, I hope you're at church, but encourage somebody. The server at the restaurant, the co-worker that you can tell is having a rough week, your spouse, your child, your boss, your pastor, your friend. Look, if you don't have anybody to encourage, text me, 225-603-2668. Text me. You can encourage me. I'll take it. I'll take all of the encouragement I can get right now. If you just don't have anybody and it's Sunday, it's Saturday night at 8 o'clock and you realize you haven't met the challenge, just text me. Encourage me all you need. I'll take it. But I, I'm willing to, to wager that there's somebody in your life that you probably already thought of that could use a smile, that could use a word of encouragement, that could really use you coming alongside them, comforting them, and encouraging Use your gift. Encourage somebody. God bless you as Brother Dave comes. Well, thank you, Brother Jason. Can we clap our hands to the Lord this evening? It's great to see everybody tonight. Turn to somebody and tell them you're glad to see them in church. That sounded pretty good. Um, Those of you on joining us on live stream and Facebook live. It's good to have you with us tonight. I almost said it's good to see you. We can't see you, but you can see us. And it's good to have you with us. We're glad you're here and just glad to see everybody tonight. It's good, just good to be in the house of God. And we had a great time in prayer last night. Uh, we just, there was a great group here and um, I, I, I told the group it felt like we took some ground last night. It felt like we were on the offensive and we just 
we, we stormed the gates of hell and broke through something. So uh, I just believe that God's got us right where he wants us to be and that great things are going to happen in the future. We made a presentation Sunday, but since today is Veterans Day, today is actual day, I do want to say happy Veterans Day to all of our vets. We appreciate your service. We're thankful for what you have done for our country and defending our freedoms and all of those, those things that make, make us who and what we are. So, uh, so thank you, veterans. And then uh, right before we turn to the Word of God, we're going to pray. And I want us to pray tonight for... Uh, Brother and Sister Murphy, uh, Brother Carol Bushnell passed away. Reverend Bushnell passed away. He's a minister, was a preacher of the gospel. This is Sister Murphy's uncle. And so we want to remember the Bushnell and the Nixon families uh, in our prayers. The, the Murphys are away at the funeral today and tonight. So let's, let's pray for them. And then let's just pray that God would have his way and that he would talk to our hearts tonight in the service. Can we do that? Jesus, we are so thankful. Lord, just to be here together in one mind and one accord, it's a, it's a privilege, Lord. We're just, we're so blessed in every way, uh, and not the least of which is to turn to your word, not the least of which is to be here together in your presence, and where two or more gathered, you're in the midst. And so tonight, I pray that you would quicken your word to our hearts and our minds, anoint me to teach and to speak what you've placed on my heart, and I pray, God, for the Murphys, the Nixons, the Bushnells, that you would be with them in this time of of grief through this valley, Lord, that you would take them by the hand, that you would be merciful, that you would be kind in Jesus' name. Everybody say in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night on the way to prayer, we were talking about, Elena and I, our daughter, was talking about how some churches have midweek service on Tuesday night. I've heard of some, kind of rare, but I've heard of some that have midweek service on Thursday night. And she asked me, she said, why do we have church on Wednesday night? I like questions like that because I, ha I don't know the answer. I have no idea. I, ha I had to think about it a minute. And finally, I told her, I said, well, the Bible says forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And by the way, the second part of that verse says so much the more as you see that day approach. So... Uh, we ought to just pass the offering on that one. That was, that was worth the price right there. As we see the day, we're seeing the day approach. I mean, it's, it's becoming more and more obvious that, God, that Jesus is coming soon. And we should not forsake the assembly of ourselves together. I said, but other than that, I don't know that there's really a mandate about when and how often we meet to worship or to study the word or to be together in the house of the Lord. And so I said, really, it just, as far as I know, kind of giving her a quick dad answer, I just said, as far as I know, it really just comes down to tradition. We meet on Wednesday nights, we meet on Sundays, it works out well, it's worked well for a long, long time, but we could have it on Saturdays and Thursdays for that matter if we did. But the bottom line in all that is that we're here, it's Wednesday night, and we're going to go into the Word of God, and I'm excited about what God has for us tonight. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God, and before I really get into it, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you what my title is and kind of the overarching theme. And I need to make some comments and set a platform and give you an idea about why and how I arrived at this topic tonight that we'll be studying. My title tonight is The Mystery of Mercy. And you can go ahead and, yeah, thank you. You can go ahead and put that on the screen. The overarching idea is the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, and... Um, I want to talk to us about that. So from that background, let me, let me give you some, some thoughts and some ideas about where I'm coming from tonight. 
what I'll be sharing, I've been studying for probably over a year now, at least, at least many, many months. And I'm not, it's not hyperbole to tell you that this co concept, this idea has changed my life. Now, I'm born and raised in Pentecost. I'm an apostolic. And this idea that I'm, I'm going to leave with you tonight and I'm going to ask you to study further after tonight has changed my walk with God. It's changed my life over the last year or so. It's this idea of God's infinite love and mercy, and we're going to drill down. But it's so powerful and it's so affirming. And I'm going to come back to this in a minute. I told you before, I'm, I'm oldest child syndrome, bad. I need affirmation. That's my love language. And, and the affirming nature of God's love and mercy is truly, truly amazing. It's, it's, it's unfathomable, really. We really can't understand it. But what's interesting is I began to condense this idea down. It was so deeply personal to me. It was so, uh, so real in so many ways. As I began condensing that down into Bible study form, I, I hit a point where I, I actually, I just, I closed it all up and I, I went in the other room and I told Fair, I said, you know what, I'm not, I said, I'm not going to share this uh, with anyone. I, I, I just, I can't, I can't get it. I can't put it together. I can't, I, I just, I can't express it. But it's so compelling that I really feel like it would be a tragedy not to share it, number one. But then secondly, over the last few months, all of our ministry team has affirmed this in one way or the other. If you go back uh, many months ago, Brother Jason opened the service on a Wednesday night, much like he did tonight. And he talked about all those heathen nations in the Old Testament and how God had wrath and destruction for them. Yet when we turn to Acts chapter 2 we see that actually a lot of those nations were present on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Ghost was poured out. And Jason made the statement, he said, God just can't help himself. He just can't help but be merciful. And then just last Sunday, Ben, Brother Ben, in his comments mentioned the mercy and grace of God. And then a week or so ago, Pastor preached the amazing grace of God. And so all of these things, I believe, were, were just affirmations and confirmations that that I was on the right track. And if you remember, when Pastor preached the amazing grace of God, he started out by saying, this is not a cheap or a casual message. And I think I know why he said that, and it was one of the real reasons why I hesitated to share this tonight. The, the, the mercy of God, the, the amazing grace of God, the love of God really has been lessened in culture over the last many years over the last few decades. Part of it, I believe, is that we don't respect authority like we should, number one. But number two is that, that pop Christianity has made God so approachable, and He is, He is approachable, He is full of love, He is full of grace, but it's become so approachable, so much so, that it's almost like God is this cosmic vending machine. That, that, that we can do anything we want, we can live any way we want and just come and push a button and say, I need grace, I need mercy, I need love, and he'll dispense it. And actually, that is true. He will. But when we really experience the love of God, when we really come in contact with the grace of God, we find that we don't want to live that way. It compels us to live in such a way that we, our lives are pleasing to him. It compels us to live in such a way that we're in alignment with that love relationship with Him. In our humanity, we struggle. In our, in our humanity, we trip and fall. 
And that's where his grace and his love picks us back up. But it's by no means cheap. It's by no means casual. It's by no means throwaway. A a message on the grace of God and on the love of God is by no means something that we downloaded on the way out the door on the way to church because we didn't have anything else to share. So the love of God, the grace of God is... Is, is, it, it's unfathomable. It, it's, 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 it's something that we can't define, although we're going to try to tonight. Then there's this other extreme. So we have the extreme where God's grace is so acceptable, so, or so accessible, so easy. Then on the other extreme, we have this austerity. And I, and I talked to someone just in the last week uh, about a person that had been away from God for, uh, for decades, 30, 40 years. And I asked them to tell me about this person. And they said, bottom line, this is that when the person came to God, when they, when they were born again, when they were born in the kingdom of God, the, 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 the environment they were in was so legalistic that there was no love of God. And, and it was reduced to, to, to a list of do's and don'ts with a God that was standing up there with, with, with a notebook checking off every time we got it wrong, every time we made a mistake. And you can't be successful in your relationship with God in that kind of environment. So that's kind of the other extreme. And and, and part of what has so motivated me with this idea and what has impacted me so much in in this study is that I grew up in probably an environment that that veered a little more towards the the fear of God, the wrath of God. Not totally, but there was... There was, that's it, I should say it like this, that's at least what I came away with as a, as a kid and a young teenager, is that God was waiting for me to mess up with his little notebook so he could zap me and just destroy my life and send me to hell without a prayer. That's kind of what I walked away with, erroneously, of course. So there's a balance somewhere in the middle of those two where if we as, as Pentecostals, as apostolics, can truly understand the love of God like, like it's portrayed in Scripture... I promise you it will change your life. Now, maybe there's some people here tonight that you got it. You just totally feel loved by God. You totally walk in the love of God every day. And you don't need to hear what I have to say tonight. And that's great. I'm glad. But I just have a feeling there's enough people here tonight, enough people listening on live stream that are like me, that that hearing a a, a refreshing understanding of the love of God is so life-giving and so life-affirming that, that it's, it's necessary and needful that we study this tonight. So let's get started. Let's get started with that little background and that little backdrop tonight. If you were to describe God in one word, just answer, don't answer out loud, but answer to yourself. If you were to describe God in one word, his character, what would that word be? How would you describe the character of God? Let me ask you this. What if God were to describe himself? How do you think he would describe his character? Let's go to our text, Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. And I'm just going to read it and I'll make comment as we go on. And the Lord passed by before him. This is Moses. The Lord passed by before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generations. 
this setting, this text, Moses has asked God if he could see God's face. And God says, no man can look on me and live. Nevertheless, I will pass by and, and put you in the cleft of the rock and put my hand over you and pass by. When God passes by, it's like he introduces himself to Moses. It's like he, he decides to tell Moses uh, some inside information about who God really is. And he introduces himself with these words, kindness, mercy, goodness. We're going to see in a minute he actually uses a word translated compassion. This is how God describes himself when given the opportunity to introduce himself. And this gives us a fascinating and very, very relevant and very, very important insight to the character of God. Now some background. The sum of the Torah law, the five books of Moses, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and everything else that God gave Moses, the sum of all of that is as follows. You do good, you get rewarded. You do bad, you get punished. If you obey, God will bless you. If you disobey, God will punish you. You see why this is so bad for somebody who, who has a, a, an affirmation complex? <laughs> you do good, you get rewarded. You do bad, you get punished. Every Jewish person would have understand, understood this. This is why the disciples go to Jesus with a blind man and say, Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Somebody along the way must have gotten it wrong to incur the wrath of God. It just, that's Torah law. That's just how it is. But yet God shows us right here and he shows Moses the same man to which he gave the Torah law. Says, I am so much more than that. I am so much more than a list of rules and regulations. I am so much more than this affirmation complex. I am a God of kindness, compassion, mercy, and grace. And I will have mercy on those generationally. It's hard to understand. It really is. It's, it's truly hard to understand because even as children take away Torah law, even as children we know, any of us that were raised right, any of us that were raised in the South, we know that if we disobey, we're going to get a spanking. We're going to be in trouble. We're going to get time out. But if we obey, then we can go get a cookie from the cookie jar, right? We, this is ingrained in us. We understand this. But perhaps one way we could explain it, and it's just touching at it. It's not, it's, not even, it's not even the full sum of divine love. But I love where Jesus says, if you being, good, uh, being uh, evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to them that ask? So he relates divine love to how we love and care for and give to our children, and even that's imperfect because we're not divine. We, we, we're still humans even in that relationship. But God says that, that that kind of gets at this idea of my love and my mercy. But drilling down further into Exodus 34, 6 through 7, where God introduces his character to Moses and going, drilling down into that, a word, a Hebrew word comes to the surface, and this is the, this is the, the, the whole crossroads of, of what I want to share tonight. This is, the, this is the aha moment. This is the revelatory moment. There's a Hebrew word in play here that, that God uses to introduce himself to Moses. 
And, um, and just giving a head media team, if you'll go ahead and put that on the screen for me. It's this word hesed. It's this word hesed. This is a Hebrew word hesed. And here's, I got great news for you tonight. Nobody knows what it means. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend the balance of our time explaining to you something that, that cannot be translated. It's this hesed love, this hesed idea. And here's the deal. If you study this and you get into your lexicons and your, and, and, and your concordances and your word studies, you'll probably see it with a C in the front of it. You'll probably see it as, as chesed or kesed. And the problem is, is that to say that like the Jews would say it, to say it in Hebrew, you actually have to kind of clear your throat as you're saying the CH. And I tried this. I was going to demonstrate. So I tried this when I was by myself and nobody was around. And it, it did not go well. It did not work. And so I'm not going to try it for you tonight. And so I, my hunch is, what I think is, is that they dropped the C to make a good Americanized English version and make it much easier to say. So you may, in your study, if you choose to study this further, you may see it both ways. And I wanted to give you that disclaimer. The problem is, is that hesed is an untranslatable word. But here it is. In, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed by and proclaimed, merciful, gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in hesed. He tells Moses, I'm abundant in hesed. And then in verse 7, he says, I keep mercy or I keep hesed unto thousands. This is important because it, it is felt that hesed is like this overarching, defining characteristic of God. It's sort of like a unifying theory of God as you begin to drill into this. And the word hesed... Uh, it, it's not really, re when I say they don't know what it means, that's not exactly right. What I mean is, is that it's not reducible down to one English word. It's so complex in the Hebrew. It's so robust. It's so laden with meaning that, that, that you can't reduce it down into, ju into just one English word. So consider this, the word hesed, or I should say the English translation of the word hesed, occurs 247 times in the King James Version. In the King James Version, it translates the word hesed 12 different ways. Trying to get at the context of it, trying to get at the meaning of it. You'll see it as mercy, you'll see it as grace, you'll, you'll, you'll see it as Loving kindness, which I'm going to touch on in just a moment. Uh, there, there, you, you could take, there's six English translations that you could look at across those English translations. Those six translations, they, they, they translate the word hesed 169 different ways. Eugene Peterson in the message translates hesed 57 different ways just in that one translation. It's a very difficult word to get at. What is being said here. But the overarching idea is mercy, grace, and long-suffering. But perhaps the best explanation of Hesed, the one I love the most that I find the most fascinating, is the Miles Coverdale translation of the Bible from 1535. Miles Cover Coverdale was a scholar and he took it upon himself to translate the Bible into English. One of the first translations into English obviously predates the King James in trying to translate the word hesed, Coverdale coined the word loving kindness. And that's fascinating to me. 
Because we, we talk a lot about loving kind, especially when we're preaching and we're teaching. The King James Version picks it up. It's all throughout the, the, the King James Version. Loving kindness, loving kindness, loving kindness. But it's fascinating to me that someone invented that phrase or invented that word again to try to somehow get at the meaning of God's true character and love for us. And he coined the phrase loving kindness. So, so, so what is hesed then? What is it? it, it it's mercy, it's grace, it's loving kindness, it's all these things. But let me kind of give you a, 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 more, a more accessible idea, a more, a more uh, e- a easily approachable version, an idea of what hesed is. Back in the 90s, there was this band, this Christian band called the Newsboys. Now, they're still around. You've probably heard them on Caleb. It's a slightly different version of Newsboys. It's not the 90s version of the Newsboys. In the 90s, they were known for their very quirky lyrics. And they have this song on, on one of their albums. It was really the one that kind of got them on the map, as I understand it. And the name of the song is just called Real Good Thing. That's what it's called, and they're talking about mercy. And this is the chorus that they say over and over and over, and I'm going to have it on the screen for you. It says this. It says, when we get, or I'm sorry, when we don't get what we deserve, that's a real good thing. And then notice the next line. Notice how they change it just ever so subtly. When we get what we don't deserve, that's a real good thing. That's a real good thing. That's Hesed. That's Hesed. It, it's, not only, it's not only getting what we don't deserve, but, it, but it's also not getting what we do deserve. It's, it's this whole package of mercy where God says, not only am I not going to hold your faults and failures and sins against you, but I'm also going to lift you up and let you lead a very blessed and abundant life. You kind of get the best of both worlds. And here's the, the whole point of all of this is it's not just a great idea. It's not just a concept. It is the very character of God. Again, I want to emphasize when God had an opportunity to, to introduce himself or to talk about his attributes, he chose this to talk about. This is who God is. It's not just mercy and grace and forgiveness. It's also blessing in abundance. This is not trivial tonight. This is not, this is not um, just throwaway. I want you to look at Psalm 107, verse 43. Whoso is wise and will observe these things, even they shall understand the loving kindness or the hesed of the Lord. If you're wise, if you'll be observant, if you'll get the book, the Word of God, and observe and search it out, You'll begin to understand the hesed, the loving kindness, the character of who God is. That indescribable mercy, grace, and compassion of God. It's literally, Jason, God showing mercy because he cannot help himself. He just can't help himself. He can't help but show mercy. It's who he is. It's his divine 
character. And I want to tell you, it runs, here, it's so beautiful, it runs like a thread through the Word of God. Once you, once you get a hold of this idea, once you begin to study it, once you get out your concordance or you get on your favorite Bible software and you begin to trace this out, it shows up in the most amazing places. It shows up in the most uh, unpredictable places. I've been, uh, now that I've been studying this and praying on it, meditating on it, I'll be reading my Bible just maybe in my daily reading and all of a sudden it just, come, it just comes off the page. It just illuminates. And I'm like, that's hesed. That's, that's, that's love. It's mercy. It's loving kindness. And, and it, 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 it's revolutionary when you get it into your spirit. When you get it into your heart, when you get it, when you wake up every morning like the psalmist, we'll get to this, thanking God for his hesed, praising God for his loving kindness in the morning, meditating on his loving kindness and his hesed in the evening. It is a game changer in your walk with God. So I want to give you three examples tonight, three places where hesed is so beautiful. It is not all of them. As I told you, 240 some times Hesed is talked about in the scripture. We won't exhaust it tonight, but watch these carefully and it'll illuminate this idea even more. Not surprisingly, David, the man after God's own heart, in my mind, he kind of, where, where God showed Moses who he was uh, or told him of, of, of his character, it was like David picked it up and especially in the Psalms. It just explodes in the Psalms. It's all over the Psalms. You, you, you can't get away from it. But what's so beautiful is that the scripture tells us that, 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 that God established David's throne on the idea of Hesed. The, the whole bedrock, the whole foundation of everything David was, was, found on, was founded on this idea of Hesed. I want to go to 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 6. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 6, if you're turning in your Bibles, this is Solomon. He's dedicating the temple. And the first thing he does is he thanks God for his kindness and his hesed to David. Look at this. Solomon said, 1 Kings 3, 6, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy. That's hesed right there, translated. Great hesed. According as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great Hesed, this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to sit on the throne. So, so you see, David, God promised David, you'll always have a son. You'll always have lineage on the throne. It's all based out of and flows from this idea of hesed. That's why God kept, or that's how God kept his covenant. And this makes perfect sense for us that God would do this for David because David was such a perfect man. I mean, he, he got it all right. He never made any mistakes. So, of course... God would show great hesed and mercy to David. That's incorrect, by the way, if you're following along. The opposite is absolutely the truth. David, the, the, the far from perfect one. David, the, the adulterer, the murderer. David, the disobedient. He even disobeyed, he even disobeyed God in numbering the people. Just crass, craven disobedience to God when he numbered the people. David was a terrible dad. His kids were whack jobs, if we could just say it that way. And, and he, his whole family was dysfunctional in every way. David, I think you could even say David's friendships were dysfunctional. I don't know that he really had any friendship that went really well. Yet this is the guy that God chose to establish his throne and reveal his hesed to him. In order to demonstrate the love of God. In order to demonstrate that it was so vast 
that it could not be denied, it could not be discarded. And no matter how much sin, no matter how much mistake, no matter, no matter how much David got it wrong, he, he chose to swim in the vast ocean of God's mercy and he ran in the fields of God's love. He celebrated God's hesed. He rejoiced in God's hesed. In short, he accepted God's hesed on his life even when he had made terrible, terrible choices and terrible mistakes. What an example. What an example for us. First Chronicles 16, if, you'll, if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, it's not, in our, it's not going to be on the screen, but 1 Chronicles 16, this is where the ark finally, David finally got the ark back to Jerusalem, got it back to the tabernacle where it needed to be. In the preceding chapters, this is where, this is where David had, had brought the ark back incorrectly. This is where Uzzah had touched the ark and, and, and died. This is where David's wife, Michael, had scoffed at David's rejoicing and was stricken to be barren in her womb. All of that happened in the preceding chapters. But finally in 1 Chronicles 16, David gets it right. And, he, and he, he is celebrating that the presence of God has returned to Jerusalem. And in verse 7 of 1 Chronicles chapter 16, the Bible says that David delivered a psalm to Asaph, one of the musicians, one of the poets, one of the writers. And it's a song of worship, of celebration, of, of, of thanksgiving. And, and, and it, it reads just like a psalm in the book of Psalms, if you read through there. And in verse 34 of 1 Chronicles 16, 34, he says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he, his, for he is good, for his mercy, his hesed endures forever. And this is what David, the man whose throne was established on hesed, the man who, who I believe more than anyone else in the scripture understood and had a, had a grasp and a concept on this idea of God's character. This is what he chose to worship God about. This is what he chose to sing about. If he was going to write a poem, if he was going to write a psalm, if he was going to write a song and sing it, he was going to sing about the hesed and the mercy of God, for he is good for his mercy, his hesed endures forever. And, and we're told, we, we study through that, that over time, this became a sort of national motto for the Israelite nation. Kind of like our in God we trust, that, that his mercy, his hesed endures forever. There's a psalm in the book of Psalms where, where David writes a line and then he just follow, follows it up with his mercy endures forever. And then another line for his mercy endures forever. And another line in his mercy endures forever. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Praising God for his hesed. Praising him for his mercy. Let me hasten by just giving you one more example out of the psalm. Psalms 103. David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. He redeems your life from destruction and crowns thee with hesed, with loving kindness and tender mercies. Uh, if you keep reading down verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in hesed, plenteous in mercy. Verse 11, for as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his hesed. Towards them that fear him. 17, but the mercy, the hesed of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. 
And then he ends it in verse 22 by just saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And, and again, the Psalms are full of David worshiping and praising God for his hesed. Now, ultimately, Jesus Christ is the true embodiment of hesed. He's the, he's the, ultimate, the ultimate one, uh, the ultimate manifestation of God's hesed. But I don't want to go there tonight. That, to me, would be, uh, I think, probably you've, le- you've probably leapt ahead in your mind and thinking, yeah, that's probably the ultimate playing out of this idea, and it is. But I, I would rather tonight, just for the balance of our time, just turn our attention to, this, to, to, to some more obscure or maybe some, some that, are, um, that are not quite so readily, readily noticed. I want you to look at the, the, my, what we call the minor prophets. And we say, well, they're all, about, they're all about wrath and they're all about God's judgment and they're all about how angry God is. And these prophets, all they did was prophesy destruction. And, and that's true, they did. But as we take a closer look, tucked away in there, tucked down in there, is this idea of Hesed. I want to take you to the book of Hosea. Book of Hosea. We don't preach a lot about Hosea. We don't talk a lot about Hosea. But one of the most beautiful pictures of Hesed, one of the most beautiful pictures of God's great love for his church. Hosea is, 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 is commanded by God to go and marry a harlot. He, God tells him, go find a harlot marry her and start a family with her. And this is a, it's a living parable of, of, of Israel's adulterous and idolatrous relationship with God. How, how they kept running from God and, and, and what God called harlotry. They would, they would backslide, they would leave God, they would, they would absolutely just backslide in every way and, and leave God. And then God would go get them and forgive them and bring them back. And, and, and God wanted to use Hosea's life as a word pic, or as a living picture, a living parable of this idea. So Hosea goes and finds this lady by the name of Gomer, and he marries her. And, and, and she's not faithful even to him, and, and he has to go back and get her time and time again. But bottom line is this, he goes and, and he marries Gomer, and they, they start a family. And she conceived and bore a son, and his name was Jezreel. And, and this had to do with the avenging of of bloodshed of, of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. We'll, we'll kind of skip over that. But in verse 6, Hosea 1 and 6, she conceived again and bare a daughter, and God said unto him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I... Li, li, listen to this. This is how fed up God is. I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel. I'm done. It's over for Israel. So name this child lo Ruhama, which literally means no mercy. That's what God was saying to Israel. Then they, they get, that child is born, they name her. Then in verse 9, they have another, another child, a son, and God says, call his name Lo-Ami, which means not my people. So God is so fed up, he's like, you're not even my people anymore. I don't, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm sorry that I called you my people. I'm done having mercy over you or for you. But then look at Hosea 1 verse 7. Just as quickly as God says that, he says, But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah. I will save them by the Lord their God and not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, nor by horses, nor by horses. Again, to quote Brother Jason, he just can't help himself. Look at verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be the sand of the sea that can't be measured or numbered. 
numbered. He says that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there it shall be said, you are the sons of the living God. Just as quickly as God has angered and outdone and, and has cut them off in his mind and said it's over, he's right back saying, I love you. I'm going to honor my covenant with you. I'm going to have mercy on you. And it's, 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 it's just, it's a, it's a picture of the mercy of God. Where does Hesed come in? Well, Hesed come in, comes in in Hosea chapter 2. Verse 19, after, after these two children whose, whose names indicate the wrath of God, Jesus says, or I'm sorry, God says, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yes, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness, hesed, and in mercies. Verse 23 is also notable for how God talks about the mercies and the hesed that he would have to Israel, even in his anger, even in their idolatry, even in their harlotry, God calls it. He cannot help because it's his character, because it's who he is. You know the scripture that says God is love? He really is. It's like really his character is really who he is. One more brief example out of the scriptures, and we'll have hopefully have some application here. I think besides David, David had, I believe, the most acute revelation of Hesed of anyone in Scripture. I think the second person to have the revelation was Jonah. Jonah. This is an amazing, to me, an amazing manifestation of the, um, the Hesed of God, the love of God. Jonah, of course, was told to go and prophesy to Nineveh. And Jonah argues with God and says, I don't want to do it. I'm not going. And of course, he gets swallowed by the big fish. We call it a well. And uh, he, he repents and he says, I'll go and preach and I'll do, uh, I'll do what you sent me to do. Why do you think Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh? Why, why is that? Is it, is it because he was running from the call of God on his life, as I've heard preach before or talk? Was it because he was just generally a disobedient person? I've heard that before. Was it, was it because he was afraid? Heard that before. Actually, none of these are accurate. None of these are true. Jonah tells us why he didn't want to go. He tells, he tells God why he didn't want to go. It's in verse 2 of chapter 4 of Jonah. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord. Well, let me just tell you first. He, Jonah goes and preaches to Nineveh. They repent and God has mercy on them. Much to Jonah's dismay, I might add. And he prayed unto the Lord and he said, Lord... Was not this my saying when I left my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God, slow to anger, and of great hesed, loving kindness. And you would repent of the evil. Let me read the New King James Version because I think it will be a little clearer. So he prayed to the Lord and he said, Ah, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish. Why? For I know that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. In other words, John is saying, God, you've forgiven Nineveh, and that's exactly why I didn't want to go. Because I knew that you were full of hesed, and would forgive them. And Jonah just didn't want any part of it. 
And that's to his discredit. He shouldn't have been that way. But it shows me that Jonah had an acute understanding of the character of God. This heathen nation, the Nineveh was not a Jewish nation. They were heathens. They were Gentiles. They were way off the charts in their evil practices. They were, they were, um, they were wealthy. They, they, they had need of nothing. They certainly had no need of God. And yet God said, I want to show my compassion to them. I want to show them great hesed. And Jonah knew it. He knew it very clearly. He knew loud and clear how God was going to respond. So that's why I say I believe, according to Scripture, of anybody besides David, Jonah had an understanding of Hesed. So in conclusion tonight, what does this all mean? Why share all of this tonight? Well, Rick Warren says that he says that the ultimate goal of dynamic Bible study is application not just interpretation. In fact, Pastor has put that quote in our, in our grace steps because, because, because Bible study and information without application really doesn't do us a whole lot of good. And so, so tonight, let me, let me spend some time in the balance of our time just applying this. I don't know if you caught it, but, but several weeks ago now, a couple of months ago now, Pastor was preaching a message on a Sunday morning and, and, and he got, for just a few moments, he got into this idea of labels that we wear, and, and, and he didn't spend long on it, and it wasn't the main uh, idea of his message, but he spent a few moments on it, and he talked about labels, and he used that scripture in 2 Corinthians 10, 5 that says, casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Those imaginations, those high things are labeled, and they exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. They exalt themselves against what we know to be true. So to say it another way, we label ourselves unloved by God even in the face of the knowledge of the truth that we are loved by God. And so it's this idea that we label ourselves. And, and so what happens is, is, that, is that we are told by people in our lives that we're not loved. Some of, some, some, sometimes it's from a spouse that walks out on us and, and says, I don't love you anymore. So, sometimes it's a parent that, that abandons us or deserts us and says, you're not loved anymore. And sometimes it's mistakes and failures and we say to ourselves, I don't even love myself anymore because of what I've done. And we project those labels on God. And we say, well, if so-and-so doesn't love me, if I've been branded or labeled un unlovable, if I don't even love myself, then surely God doesn't love me. And that's where this Bible study is so important. This is, this is why I, 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 I want to help somebody tonight take the label of unloved off of your life. Because it isn't true. As I've, as I've tried to demonstrate for the last 30, 35 minutes or so, you are distinctly and acutely loved by God. He just can't help himself. He loves you so much. So take that label of, 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 of unloved off. I'm going to tell you, I mentioned earlier, I, I, as, as the, the performance label is the one that gets me as the oldest child. That, that if I do right, if I do good, then, then I'm loved and I've got it all together. And if I do wrong or mess up in some way, then I'm not loved. And that's a, that performance label is dangerous. It's the worst one, or I think it is, because if you're, you're either really down in the dumps for underperforming or you're thinking too highly of yourself for, for overperforming. Either way, you lose. And, and so it's just bad. I, I'll give you an example. Just this week, I... I was to, um, I w we had a lot of things going on, a lot of, lot of moving parts, and, and Ferris sent me a text and said, I want you to, to stop and pick up X, Y, and Z for, uh, for Elena. She needs this for school tomorrow. 
and I misunderstood my instructions. I didn't, get, I didn't quite get the memo, and I, and, I, and I didn't get it right. I totally blew it, totally messed it up, just in my mind ruined everybody's life. And, I, and for a moment, for a little while, I was so down on myself because of that performance label, because I didn't measure up. I didn't do what I was asked to do. I messed up. It was an innocent, honest mistake. But I had, I had not gotten it right, and therefore I turned inward and began beating myself up. But, and I, I'm saying that in transparency tonight because this is why the Hesed love of God has meant so much to me over the last year to year and a half. Because once I swim in the ocean of God's love, once I realize that I'll never be good enough for God to love me and I'll never be bad enough for him to stop loving me, it's the great equalizer. It's the great neutralizer. I don't have to wake up in the morning wondering if I'm going to somehow fall out of favor with God because it's impossible to do. He just can't help but love us. It's a lie to think that he doesn't. And I'm going to tell you, he could. He could consume us. He has every right to. But do you know what Lamentations 3.22 says? It says, it is of the Lord's mercies, of the Lord's hesed, that we are not consumed. Why? Because his compassions fail not. I'm telling you, this idea of hesed is extremely powerful. And I'm going to end on this last point. I had a, had a tremendous conversation with Jeremy Sandlin the other day, uh, one Sunday right after church. And he talked about how Psalms 23, it says, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So when I look back over my life where I see mistakes and failures and where I didn't get it right and where I wish I'd have done better, God sees goodness and mercy. And that's a powerful, powerful concept. I, I, it resonated so well with, with my spirit. And so I just had to look it up. I had to go look. And sure enough, mercy there is translated from the word hesed. So, so goodness and hesed shall follow me. It shall follow me how? All the days of my life. I want you to know you have a lifetime guarantee. This, this hesed of God, this love of God comes with a lifetime guarantee. You can't outrun it. You can't outlive it. It lasts forever. If it wasn't eternal, it wouldn't be hesed. It lasts forever. So I want you to stand with me tonight. We'll, we'll close in prayer tonight. Tonight is a beginning. This is a beginning. We, we never exhaust it all, never, never take you all the way through. I'm not even through studying it myself. But tonight, I hope I've sparked somebody's journey. If you will wake up tomorrow and begin studying this, if you'll wake up tomorrow and begin praying this, if you'll let it sink into your life, I promise you it will change your perspective on God and it will change your perspective on how God views you. So let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. And tonight, I really thank you for your love. I thank you for your mercy and your grace. And I thank you that your character tells me that I am loved. Your character tells me that, that, that I can't outrun it. Lord, it tells me that it lasts forever, that it's eternal. And no label that anybody could put on me, no label anyone or that I could put on myself could, could ever override or override the amazing love of God. Lord, let this penetrate our heart. Let it penetrate our spirit. Let it change us in Jesus' name. Everybody say in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. As you feel comfortable tonight, would you greet somebody on your way out? And we're looking forward to seeing you at church this coming Sunday. God bless you in Jesus' name.